Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. The whole idea of man life is we recognize that manhood is different throughout different stages of life, right? So I don't know if you saw maybe up on the, in the video that oh, I'm in this stage or I'm in this stage. You got my monarchs on, um, you know, whatever, whatever stage that, uh, that may be. But following Jesus in those different stages looks slightly different um, as well. And so we're going to be talking a little bit through that. Couple speakers, a little bit of worship, um, and uh, and as always, uh, some some really good food. And so, uh, come to that and bring a friend. Right? We say that every time we have an event. Bring a friend. Bring a friend. Unless it was two years ago, in which case we're like, no, stay away, no one come, don't talk to any of your friends. Um, but uh, but that tends to kind of be the church's mo, right? Like any time that we do something, we have something. Bring a friend. Hey, make sure you're, you're bringing a, a friend. That's just what we do on a regular basis because as a church, we really, I mean, churches in general should believe two things about what we do. And the first is that we believe deeply in the idea of community. It's why we push small groups so hard, as a matter of fact. You know that, that our, as far as we can tell, we have more small groups offered than any other church in Kings County. Right? Like we believe deeply in that idea of, uh, of community. Like people, we want to get people together who believe the same thing about God that you do so we can be consistently sharpening one another. And then the second reason that we always say, hey, bring a friend, is because we believe the good news of Jesus is too important to keep it to ourselves. Right? And so that's one of the reasons that it's the other reason we want to do that. I truly believe I came to a saving relationship with Jesus for, for two reasons. One, because my parents consistently brought me to church growing up, and it was a habit that was put into place. But then the other reason is when I got into high school, college, and my, my parents started allowing me to make some of those decisions for myself regarding what my faith looked like and that sort of thing, I had friends who wouldn't let me leave the church who were consistently checking up on me, consistently holding me accountable, consistently inviting me to these other opportunities that the church had, even if it wasn't my church, just these opportunities that were being had to, to allow me to grow closer uh, to Jesus. And that, like, that's, that's what we want to be about. That's why we consistently say, bring your friends. It's not so we can grow the church and make sure that uh, we can keep the lights on or we're trying to grow our tiny little empire. We don't care about that. We want to consistently and continually grow the kingdom of God, both in depth as well as in width, which is why we consistently say, bring your friends. And so in Mark chapter 2 today, which is where we're going to be, you can flip there um, or click there if you're, you got a device. Um, we are going to see two very real stories about people bringing their friends to Jesus. Consistently, over and over, we see this in the Gospels. We see Jesus arrive on the scene and people just want to bring, bring their friends um, to him. And so while on one side of the equation, we think to ourselves, you know, am I consistently bringing somebody or am I consistently being a part of, of community? Am I, in, am I gathering in my small group? Am I doing all of these other things? On the flip side, I want you to also think about maybe when is the last time that you have brought somebody to Jesus? And I think that's the harder piece for the Western church in America to, to grasp is it is very, very, very important, not just for us to come into a saving relationship with Jesus, but beyond that, to invite others in as well. Because I don't think you can truly have one without the concern of the other. And the reason we say this is a lot of people actually believe that pastors are, are the people who bring most people to Jesus. A lot of people believe that, like, oh, we'll leave that to the professionals. 
Uh, truth be told, there's a study done. Only about 5% of people come to Jesus because of pastors. 5%. The lion's share of that group is family and friends who have invested in these people's lives and have introduced these people to Jesus. It's something like 85% and the other like 10, 5%, whatever the math is, is like parachurch organizations, crusades, different things like that. But pastors are a very small piece. The largest group of people who bring others to Jesus is simply friends and family of those future converts. And it's the reason that we talk about oikos so much here, right? Um, oikos, if, if you're new here or maybe you haven't been here when we preached on the idea of oikos. Oikos, it's a Greek word. It's not just a yogurt. It's a Greek word uh, that's used throughout the New Testament, okay? And this Greek word simply means household. I don't think of like your current household and, and just like maybe your spouse or maybe you got a couple kids or anything like that. The word denoted everybody in your care. Okay, so your household was everybody that you cared for. If you had an estate, it meant everyone who worked for you. If it meant maybe your spouse and your kids, usually extended family, okay, probably friends as well. So the way that we use it here is that we say that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people, your oikos, uh, into your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. People you already know, people who are already in your life, people who are already in your care. And so when people ask, like, what is our plan? You know, we go to these pastors' conferences and that sort of thing. Like, what strategy are you guys using to build the kingdom? What evangelism opportunities do you guys have going on? And the answer is really pretty simple. Like, for us, we say, hey, we do a couple large events each year, right? We do some, some uh, man life events and we throw sharp objects and stuff. And um, we have like our, uh, our fall carnival that we do and we do the inflatables and we do kids stuff. We do some VBS things. So we do have some events that people can bring their friends to. But for the most part, we just want our people to recognize the opportunity that they have, recognize what Jesus did in their lives, and then share that with other people. That's all it is. And, and, and like we're not reinventing the wheel here. We recognize all of this comes straight from Scripture. And actually, I, I think that's the difficult part of the church is, is there's a very few amount of people, very select amount of people who take this seriously. And everybody else is just kind of like, you know what, I'm good. I'll leave that to, to other people. And actually, Keller, Tim Keller uh, has a great quote on this. He says, the church is often like a football stadium where 22 people need rest and thousands of people need exercise. Oh, that's pretty good. This shouldn't be the case because everyone can and should make an impact for those people who are in their oikos. So as we're talking through this passage in Mark today, I want you really to, to recognize that these people who are brought to Jesus are found in these guys' oikos of those who bring them if Jesus isn't the one who explicitly invites them himself. So let's look at verse 1, starting in chapter 2. It says, A few days later, when Jesus, uh, again, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the, family, or the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? 
Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everybody, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So let's break this down a little bit. And there's one more passage we're going to get to in just a little bit. But in Mark 2, we see Jesus come back to Capernaum. Last week, we talked about the idea that Jesus was in Capernaum, he's hanging out, and he's healing all of these people. Tons of people are coming. So many people that Jesus is like, you know what, I need to go find a quiet space to pray, which I hope all of you had your alarm set early uh, in the morning this last week to find a quiet place to pray. Um, But Jesus went and prayed, and they came, his disciples came, and he's like, hey, Jesus, people are looking for you. You got to come back. There's all these people who are looking for you. Jesus is like, you know what? Nah, let's bounce. We're going to get out of this place. And so they, they begin to go to all of these other villages to teach and forgive sins, to, um, to, 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 just, to heal people, to exercise demons, to do all of these different things. So they had been away, and now Jesus is coming back to Capernaum. And so again, this is a very, very small town that Jesus is in, right on the Sea of, of Galilee. And in the next like, chapter and a half, chapter two and a little bit beyond, we're going to see five stories in a row. And all of these stories, um, most scholars believe that these, score, these stories aren't in chronological order. For you Bible buffs out there, um, they don't think that these happen one after another. These are actually grouped thematically. And what we're going to see is Jesus has a run-in with religious leaders over the course of these next five stories. There's controversies that happen in these next five stories. And, and so the reason most people believe this was put in there is that the, to show that the Jews, show the Jews that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, teachers of the law, however it is that they are referenced in the next few verses, they are actively working against Jesus being the Savior. And we continue to have this rivalry uh, pop up between Jesus and them that started last week. And we talked about that a little bit. So in the first story, this first piece right here, we need to understand that we need to bring our oikos to Jesus because Jesus forgives sins for you note takers. Jesus forgives sins. And in this story, we got to understand that, that this place, this house, it's kind of like, like a church that's going on right now. Because Jesus comes back, and remember last week we largely talked about that, that there were just hordes of people who were coming in, and G, like, oh, Jesus is here, and he's this miracle worker, and so Jesus comes back into town, and most likely this reputation of Jesus had not changed at this point. So people hear Jesus, and the disciples are coming back, and so tons of these people start packing into this place. A lot of people believe there's probably around 75 people in there or so, and it is packed, like nobody can get in. And actually, tradition says that this house, the same house, which most likely is, is Peter's house, the Apostle Peter's house, becomes a house church later on. But a controversy arises here. In verse 1, uh, Jesus, he, he comes home, and the house is full. The atmosphere is probably pretty, pretty intense. Think about it. The house is it's packed. It's electric in there. It's a little warm, kind of like it is in here, or at least I am right now. And Jesus is preaching the word. And the words that he is preaching is unlike anything these people have ever seen. This authority that Jesus has is unlike any authority they had ever seen before. We talked about that last week. You can kind of just like imagine the workers or the moms and dads, like the kids, like peeking in 
through the window, like, oh, I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. Did you see his beard? His beards look awesome today, right? Like whatever they, they were saying, they just wanted to get a glimpse and maybe, maybe hear him. And he's preaching about the kingdom of God and, and the need to repent. And four men bring their friend or maybe relative of theirs to Jesus. Maybe it's a combination of the two. And these guys, they obviously love this man. They believe that Jesus can change this guy. And so it is so full in the house that they remove the roof. And us reading this story, we're like, man, these guys have a ton of faith. If you're the homeowners, you're not too happy about what's going down right now, right? These guys who have a ton of faith and, hey, we're going to carry a, a dude up onto your roof because it's too packed in there. And we're going we're gonna to pull the straw back. We're going to pull the mud back. And then we're going to slowly lower this guy to the, to the feet and presence of Jesus. Jesus says, it says, Jesus saw their faith. Their faith. They're not even talk, he's not even talking about, most likely, the guy who's on the stretcher, the paralytic at this point. He's talking about the four friends who brought their buddy to Jesus. Jesus announces, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's a little surprising, right? Especially because of what we know about Jesus up to this point, or rather the, the people in the, the, the town of Capernaum know about Jesus up to this point. Because before, what happened? They would bring the people who were sick to Jesus, and, and Jesus would heal their bodies, and they would walk away, and they would be good to go. And so these four guys who probably either got healed by Jesus at some point or, or knew somebody who got healed thought, this is the guy. Let's bring our paralytic friend to go get healed, our friend who has a physical ailment, who is broken physically. Let's take him to Jesus because he probably has a pretty hard life. Things are probably pretty difficult for him being a paralytic. And we don't know how paralyzed he was, it doesn't say. Okay, but we know that he was, a, he was paralyzed and probably a little bit of a burden on his family. We're not talking modern medicine here or anything like that. It probably a very, very difficult life. So they think, I know the person, I know the one person who can help our friend cure his physical condition. And they take him, and it's crowded, and they claw through the roof to get to this one guy because they love their friend so much, and they lower him down. And Jesus does exactly what Jesus should do in this instance, and he does not heal him at first. More importantly, he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So what we should probably notice at this point then in our lives, is that our greatest needs are not physical. Our greatest needs are not physical. Our greatest need is having our sins forgiven. And Jesus is very, very upfront about all of this. Your greatest need is not about getting a date or getting a, a spouse or getting a new job or getting a diploma or getting a raise or whatever it may be. That is not your greatest need. What good is all of that apart from forgiveness? And that's what Jesus is doing. Like, like it's not that he's not concerned with your physical condition. He is. It's just not as important as your, as your spiritual condition. And I think we really need to take something from that. We'll get that in a second. But after that, so the scribes at that point, they charge Jesus, the teachers of the law, whatever. They charge Jesus with what Jesus is eventually going to get charged with at the end of his life, blasphemy. 
The charge, they, they charge him with this because they know that only God can forgive sins. And the crazy thing is, they were right. Only God can forgive sins. Like the teachers of the law, they were smart. Oftentimes, I think they get a bad rap because we're like, oh, these, here's these dummies again. They were very, very intelligent men. And so at this point, they're like, hey, you're blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And the only thing they were wrong with was their assessment of who Jesus was. Like that's where they were, where they were wrong. And ultimately, this is the charge that is going to put Jesus on the cross. So Jesus, Jesus responds. He says, why do you question these things in your heart? This is a really interesting thing. Because right? they never audibly spoke out any of this. Jesus just knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And so this is another instance where we see that Jesus is both 100% man as well as 100% God. Right? He's not just a man walking around on earth. This is, this is a claim to, uh, to deity here just by the fact that he says, yep, I know what's going on in your, in your hearts. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up your mat and walk? You answer that question. What would be easier for you to keep your credibility in your life? Would it be easier for you to say, you know what, I'm going to forgive your sins or get up and walk? I mean, most people would say forgive sins, right? Because you can't see it. You can never see like whether or not it actually worked on this side of eternity. It would be way easier for someone to claim that they're Jesus and walk around and say, I'm forgiving your sins, I'm forgiving your sins, I'm forgiving your sins, because there's no proof. There's no evidence of it. Or is it more difficult to say, take up your mat and walk? Ah, then all of a sudden there's evidence. There's proof. There's a physical condition that needs to be healed. There's a physical condition that needs to be met. And I think that's one of the things that we miss. You know, when someone gets hurt, when your friend gets hurt or someone has some sort of ailment or a surgery or, or whatever it may be, that you can see the wounds, you can see the scars, you can see the casts, right? You can see maybe they have to be in a wheelchair, they have to use crutches, or, or, or they are impaired in some way because of what they had gone through. You can see it. It's a physical reminder of the fact that they were broken in some way. Their body was, was physically broken in some way. And so we tend to focus on those things. But Jesus here, he's saying, look, I know you're broken. I know you're broken physically. But the most important thing that you need to get out of this is not physically, like, like for me to cure your physical ailment. What you need is the forgiveness of sins. That is the single most important thing. And so credit to this guy's four friends that even though they may have brought him there assuming, hey, we're going to cure your physical ailment, Jesus did what was way more important curing their spiritual brokenness, not the man's physical brokenness, which is why I think that we don't take it seriously enough to talk to our friends and bring our friends to Jesus because we are not constantly reminded of their spiritual brokenness in the same way that when they have a physical ailment, we are constantly reminded of the physical ailment. It's not right in front of us. We can't see it all of the time. We're not always reminded of those of those things. And so Jesus says, hey, is it easier for, for me to say that I'm going to forgive you or make someone physical, physically well? well? And so Jesus, again, he forgives him. But again, Jesus is more than a miracle, waker, miracle worker. We tackled that 
last week. There were other miracle workers in the Old Testament that none of them could actually grant this idea of final forgiveness. That was, that was reserved for God alone. And so this is his response to the charge of blasphemy. He's saying, I'm not blaspheming, I'm God. That's his response. He says, this man, like in their hearts, they're saying, this man is blaspheming. How can he forgive sins? And his response is, I'm not blaspheming. I'm God. That's why I can say, you are forgiven. Jesus says that he has the authority to forgive sins. This is a clear statement of deity. This is Jesus saying, I am God. I mean, look at this scene. This guy, he came in lying on a mat. He couldn't move. He was busted up and broken. And he left carrying that mat. Can you imagine the expression of those at his home? Like if that happened here, like we would walk away shocked. We wouldn't even care about the breakfast burritos that we had in the back. We would be so excited. But then the question becomes, why did Jesus do the physical healing in the first place then? Like what was the point? Because the most important thing was the spiritual condition. The bigger need was his forgiveness. And I think the answer is to say that I'll do the healing to show that I can do the forgiving. I think that's why ultimately he did it. And then my favorite part of the story, it wasn't that the man was eventually healed or like he went away and his friends came back and told the disciples, oh yeah, he's healed now. Immediately he was healed. It didn't take time. He healed him immediately. I just imagine like dancing, running, walking, signing up for a 5K, like ready to go excited to be able to use his legs. And it says that the people were in amazement of this guy. So you see a bunch of committed friends who want their buddy to be healed and they obviously couldn't help. So they did what any friend would do. They brought him to the only person who could heal him. And I think it goes the same way in our spiritual lives. If there are people in your life who do not know Jesus, They have a broken spiritual condition in the same way that, man, we are sad for people when they have a broken physical condition. Our hearts should rip in half when we recognize that someone that we know and love has a broken spiritual condition. They are in need of Jesus, and it's our responsibility to introduce those people in our oikos to him. And I think that's one of the main takeaways from this passage, that these guys, it wasn't the paralytic's faith. Jesus says, it is your faith that has made him well. These guys who knew exactly who they needed to to introduce their friend to. But then we have another story here. It's in Mark 2, 13 to 17. It keeps going. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. This is going to be a common theme. So if you're a person who constantly is looking for excuses to go out by the lake, just say, well, Jesus did it all the time and you should be good, okay? It says, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When they asked his disciples, or I'm sorry, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see in this story now, not only does Jesus forgive sins, like we saw in the first story, we also see that Jesus liked hanging out with sinners. 
That's the other, that's the other half of it. We see him call this guy by the name of Matthew, Matt, or by the name of Levi. Eventually, people assume that he is the one who wrote the book of Matthew. And Jesus simply says, hey, follow me. Where have we heard this before? Last couple weeks, right? Jesus is calling these fishermen, these other four guys, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, to come and follow him. He says, drop your nets, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. They drop their nets, they follow him. They start fishing for men. He says the same exact thing to this guy Levi here. Interesting thing about, about Levi is Levi had a lot of money, but Levi didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> I think actually some of you would be okay with that situation. You're like, I need less people and more money in my life. I get it. But Jesus comes to him, and, and in the same way that he called these four fishermen, Jesus now calls the one who taxed these four fishermen. This is one of my favorite pieces of this story, this picture of redemption. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, and Levi fits that bill. He is among the, quote, chief of sinners. Levi, based on his profession, he is a despised man. I want to try to lay it out how despised tax collectors were for you. Hey, Levi, he's, he's a Jewish man, and he took up taxes for Roman oppressors. He took up taxes for, like, for those people who were ruling over the Jews. And these people, they were notorious for taking additional money as well. Right? He, was, he was there in, in Capernaum taking up taxes, and, and most likely fish was going to be one of those commodities. Okay? They had axle taxes that, that, depending on the amount of axles that they had, they charged a certain amount, and then they would, they would add money on top of that and then beyond that. Like whatever commodity it was that you had, they would tax that. And then these tax collectors would take a little bit more off the top as well. Tax collectors were notorious and hated by the Jewish people as traitors and as abusers of their own flesh and blood. They were a mafia-like organization in the first century that just exploited people for money. So because they, like they served Rome, right, this Gentile occupation over Israel... They were essentially dishonest IRS agents who overcharged the people for their own profit. Like that's who they were. I think as I was studying this, one of my favorite things that I came across, there's two Jewish writings called the, uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud. Um, and uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud, they set them right next to thieves and murderers. They were so despised and loathed. Actually, they were, they were expelled and banned from the synagogue, weren't allowed to come to worship at all. Doesn't matter who, who anybody else was, but those guys, tax collectors, forget it. You guys, you guys can't come in. They were an embarrassment and disgrace to their families. This was my favorite part that I learned, though. The touch of a tax collector. If a tax collector touched you, your entire house was rendered unclean, according to Jewish tradition. You had to go through ceremonial washing because these people were so despised. And beyond that, these were the only group of people that Jews were allowed to lie to and have zero repercussions afterwards, right? Like, like at some point, the Jewish leaders were like, you know what? You can't lie to anybody except those tax collectors. Like, just tell them you have 10 fish instead of 15 and you should be good, right? Like, they were okay with that. That's how despised these people were. And so Levi, with money as his God, was this like social leper who was spiritually bankrupt, essentially having sold his soul to sin and like self, like to his self. 
And he was in need of Jesus. And Jesus calls him and Levi follows, which is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And at the end of this story, they end up at his house. And I think this is the part that I want to I focus on. They end up at Levi's house with a bunch of Levi's friends. Like it says his disciples were there also. So at this point, Jesus had officially called like five disciples, maybe six or seven. We don't have really uh, an understanding of when all of them started following Jesus. But let's say there were eight of Jesus' buddies. There is a party raging at Levi's house right now with sinners and tax collectors. And Levi is just excited because at one point, this guy was a social leper. No one wanted anything to do with this Jewish traitor. And then all of a sudden, this Jewish rabbi walks by his place of work and says, hey, come follow me. And in that moment, completely and totally redeemed Levi forever. So what does Levi do? Oh, I want to throw a party. And I want to invite all of my friends to this party. And Jesus, Jesus, can you come to this party too? Because you redeemed me and I've got all these other friends that I want to introduce to you. Notice there's no physical healing that happens here with Levi. Levi like didn't have a broken ankle and Jesus like zapped his ankle and was like, all right, you're good. Also, follow me. It was simply the act of redemption of him saying, look, you are broken spiritually as a person. Come and follow me. I'm going to make you whole. And he does. And he's completely and totally redeemed. And so when Jesus eats with Levi, man, the message is clear is Jesus has come for, for, for people in the margins, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you and for me. The only people left are those who think they don't need God, those self-righteous uh, uh, people and teachers of the law who think, I don't need that. Jesus came for the normal people like each and every one of us. Regardless of what your mom told me, you are a normal person in need of Jesus. And all of these stories remind us that, that, that we need Jesus, and once we have found him, we have a saving faith. And then after that, we need, to re, we need to introduce our friends to him as well. And that's who was probably at this party with Levi, not a bunch of followers of Jesus, a bunch of people who were probably in Levi's oikos, who he simply wanted to invite into the fold as Jesus invited him in as well. That was it. So say, let's, let's land the plane with this. There's two very important steps to following Jesus. Step one, follow Jesus. I know it's groundbreaking right now. What? Hold on. Yeah, follow Jesus. And I know there's many people in here and think that, that they have faith in Jesus, but your life has not changed one iota since making a profession of faith. So I think a little digging is necessary here. Like, are you setting aside time for him? Did you find that quiet place to pray with him? Are you reading his word? Are you exhibiting the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Are you in community with other people? And if the answer to those questions is no, then my guess is you still need to take step one, which is follow Jesus and making that profession of faith in your life and then acting like it. 
So that's step one. Step two, much harder than step one. Step two is we need to take, or we, we, we need to take is, is we need to tell people about him. And this is one of the hardest parts about Western Christianity is the idea that we have to go and impose our view onto somebody else is the way that a lot of people would see it. Like, I don't want to be an imposition to, to other people. And the reason we think that is because we look around and so many other people seem to be perfectly self-sufficient. All of us in here could lead completely moral lives apart from Jesus. I mean, we wouldn't have an actual you know, definition of what morality was, but we would have uh, uh, the ability to contribute to society, uh, to have a nice house. We'd have a, a nice padded 401k, at least until this year rolled around. And, and I think that that, like, we think that it is an imposition to other people for them to hear about Jesus. I don't know how we got that in our heads. That we think, man, yeah, no, I don't wanna, I don't wanna bother them about it. That can't be further from the truth. And it's detriment to other people for you not to talk about Jesus as the savior of the entire world. And I think we come to the realization of others' needs for Jesus, really, and hear me on this. We come to the realization of others' need for Jesus when we reflect on the need that he filled for ourselves in the first place. Think about that for a second. We begin to recognize the importance of sharing Jesus when we come to terms with what he actually did for us. Romans tells us that we're all sinners in need of a savior. Romans tells us it doesn't matter what we do, how good we think we are, how clean we try to be, we are all broken and in need of forgiveness. Every single one of us. You can't nice your way to heaven. You can't pay your way to heaven. There is one way and one way only. And the good news is, is Jesus has already taken care of it. God saw that there was no way to have a perfect relationship with him apart from an atoning, uh, perfect sacrifice for us, which is what Good Friday was all about. Uh, was all about. That the teachers of the law, they, they said Jesus was blaspheming against God, so we're going to crucify him. So they crucified Jesus. They killed Jesus, which was part of God's plan in the first place. And for three days, he remained in the tomb in the heart of the earth, is how Scripture says. And then resurrection day comes, and Jesus conquers death. He rises from the dead. But Jesus coming is a perfect sacrifice, dying for your sins so you don't have to die a spiritual death, fixing your spiritual condition. This is the single most important decision to be made in your life, making a profession of faith for Jesus. More important than who you marry, more important than whether or not you're going to have kids, more important than your house, more important than the job that you're looking for. The single most important decision you can make is making a profession of faith for Jesus. And so today we're going to close in a slightly different fashion. I'm still going to pray and I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond in prayer, but I'm going to ask Kyle to come on the stage. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that in order to talk to other people about Jesus, we need to reflect on what he did for us first. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I've asked Kyle uh, to come and play 
a song that I think exemplifies our recognition of how wretched we are without Jesus and what he came to do on our behalf. And so as that song is playing, I just want you, I mean, please sing out this song in praise and declaration of the fact that Jesus came and died for us. But beyond that, reflect on what he did so you can recognize the importance of that as you go from here to be able to talk about Jesus to people who you already know, people who are already in your oikos, who need to make the single most important decision that they will ever make in their entire lives, which is following Jesus. The men who carried their friend on the stretcher understood the importance of introducing their friend to Jesus. Levi understood the importance of introducing their friend to Jesus. And it's because of what Jesus had already done in his life. that He said, Jesus reconciled me forever. Guys, you need, to, you need to know who this person is as well. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your son. And thank you even for this text in Mark that, that largely tells us about the importance of communicating our faith with other, with other people or to other people. God, I pray that you would remind us this morning who it is that came to redeem us forever. Remind us of our spiritual condition before we entered into a relationship with you that we were completely and totally bankrupt because the wages of sin is death. And we recognize that. So thank you for your son and sending him on our behalf. And so if you're sitting here this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe this is you this morning, you have not yet said yes to Jesus in your life and you think, I've never, maybe I've never heard it before or never laid it out this way or maybe it's just time because the Holy Spirit is just, just giving you that tickle inside of your tummy that says, I am ready to move forward. If that's you this morning, you can simply pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit that I can do nothing apart from you. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins. And C, I choose to follow you forever. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.